All right, I will be joined in a second by uh, the two speakers in this panel. Um, I was wondering, I mean, picking up on Bruce's gloom and doom, which I totally share, if it's also a question of age. He was saying that we'll be, you know, have a society of most people over 50. I'm over 50. Are you guys over 50? Uh, lots of young people in the room, that's good. When I visited Shenzhen earlier this year, it's a city filled with young people. Um, Really quickly, my first job was actually here in Germany, in uh, the European Institute for the Media, and this was in 1991, the same year that the World Wide Web started, you know, the release the browser to the world. And uh, in fact, in the, in the beginning, my favorite service was an email service that once a week you got an email which announced all the new websites in the world that had come out that week, and some weeks there were none. I mean, it, was, it started slowly, so to speak. But it was 25 years of complete optimism. Everything was growing, everything was super, everything was, you know, we'll connect the world and we'll be a better world. And of course, this has completely gone. You know, we don't even have to look for 2027. I mean, we are doomed already, there's privacy, there's fake news, there's a Twitter fight between a dotard and a rocket man, that's the last new words in our vocabulary. There's a darknet that cannot be stopped, there's central gatekeepers like governments that are losing out, and AI is taking over all the middle class jobs. We're doomed. And then you go to a conference and you speak to entrepreneurs and thinkers and designers and young people, and um, you feel a lot better. Um, we're going to talk to designers now and their role in what's happening today. And I'm going to invite them both on stage right now. Yes, please join, join us. Lily Collet and Amy Elliott. I'll introduce them first, They'll come sit with me, and then each of them will give a short talk about their vision of what's happening and, and what they want to do. Yeah, please, please join us. Uh, and then we'll go into a chat. There you are. Lily over there, um, we'll talk in a minute about minimalism in the design process. She works for Raft Collective. This is a um, design agency in Amsterdam, and it's one of those agencies which is never allowed to speak of their clients, because basically they work for really big clients and do the interface and, and the design process for them. I know for one they've worked for IKEA, but they're not allowed to tell me that, so there you go. <laughs> But they, they, she worked before for Intel, and um, a lot of the people at Raft Collective before worked at Fork Design. And they're very much specialized in user interfaces, and um, she will tell us more about that in a second. And Amy Elliott, sitting next to me, she's now the design director at Simply Secure. She moved from Silicon Valley to Germany. She lives in Berlin these days. Uh, before she worked at IDEO and uh, also at Xerox Park, she has eight US patents to her name, and she worked for really big clients like HP, Samsung, Ericsson, AT&T. Uh, her work is in design museums, she's got many awards, but she's now here, and for a reason. So she will talk about privacy in design. But let's first hear from Lily. Lily, please, give us your talk. And I think you want to go stand up and show your yeah, slide. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Cheers. Lily Collet. Thank you. So, like Monique said, I hope uh, I can lend a little bit of optimism to the uh, double-sided optimism that David was talking about yesterday. Um, hopefully my talk will make some people feel a little bit better <laughs> about the world. Uh, so I'm Lily, and today I want to talk about a step which may be missing in your design process. That step is identifying your user's ideal path. This is the minimum required effort from your user to achieve their objective. Now, these guys are design heroes of mine, and they're experts at designing for the ideal path. 
Johnny Ive, the VP of design at Apple, Dieter Roms, a German, yay. Uh, he worked for Braun, uh, Naoto Fukusawa, who's worked also at IDEO, and uh, for Muji. And Johnny Ive talked about how simplicity is essentially describing the purpose of a product. And when he designed the iPod, the first iPod, um, the purpose of this product is to browse a thousand songs um, that are in your pocket for the first time. In order to understand the purpose of your product, you have to identify <laughs> the core objective. This is the, your user's objective agnostic of what company you happen to be working for and agnostic of what solutions already exist. So for users at this time, that was they want to listen to their music in an easier way. And with the iPod's iconic scroll wheel, it's indicating to the world now you can browse all those songs and listen to your music really easily. So this is the first concept. Dieter Roms talked about uh, the most significant design principle, one of the most significant design pr principles is to omit the unimportant in order to emphasize the important. This is a concept about what's not there, the white space. This is about prioritizing editing and uh, so that there's no distractions for the user. And Naoto Fukusawa talked about design dissolving into behavior. Um, this is a concept he called without thought. When he designed this rice cooker for Muji, he integrated, uh, he included the rice paddle and a spoon rest on the lid. So when you finish serving yourself some rice and you have a rice covered rice paddle, uh, you intuitively place it back on the lid where there's a ledge designed for it. He's orchestrated the user's experience. Now, the thing that all these great designers have in common is an ideology of minimalism. It's not minimalism in an aesthetic sense or a superficial sense, um, and it's not minimalism in a lifestyle sense. There's a lot of that going on these days but minimalism as a design approach. It's the practice of paring down to the absolute essentials and discarding the rest. So you may be thinking, that sounds nice, but user experience design can be a little more complex than a rice cooker, Lily. And the examples I'm using are products, but the concepts are about the experience around those products and the interactions around those products. And those concepts can be applied to UX design, service design, system design. No matter how complex, if you practice finding the ideal path for your user, you'll become a better designer. So allow me to illustrate this concept in minimalist terms. <laughs> Here's your user, here's their objective, and this is the ideal path. It's the straightest line between two points. Um, we'll go into it a little deeper. So let's say that your objective is to find something, to find some information. 
what would be the minimum required effort from the user to find information? They have to search. There's many ways to search. Remember libraries? This is where we used to search for information. This is where we kept it. In books, on shelves, not at your house. So there were a couple things involved on the path to uh, finding information back in the day. You had to know where a library was, you had to physically get your body inside of the library, um, and then before you can start searching, or as you start searching, you have to use the card catalog. Remember the card catalog? And, uh, and you have to write down all the pin codes, and then you can search the stacks and maybe search a couple encyclopedias. So the point is there were a couple deviations from the ideal path involved. But this was still the best option available, and we all did this. We all learned how to use libraries, and this is where we went for information. Then the internet happened. Remember this? And now you can browse information from the comfort of a beige box in your living room. There were still some imperfections. Uh, you still had to kick your brother off the phone and dial up. And then you could search. But over time, we've optimized. Well, well first I want to say, everybody adopted this new path because it was easier. And then over time, we've edited and optimized for that search interaction. Now there's no more dial-up. We're always connected. All of you are connected right now to the internet through a little box that should be in your pocket. Um, and we've began to uh, experiment with the interaction, this core purpose of the product. Um, how minimalist does this homepage look? Uh, and Google is constantly trying to optimize for search. They've identified this key interaction. Um, right now, we just type it into a box, but we're also, as we heard yesterday, experimenting with just speaking into thin air. And eventually, Google will be able to just tell you what you're looking for. So we've, we're approaching the ideal path. Now, I'm not proposing that we all start designing user experiences to be like the bare minimum. Um, but what I am proposing is that you should at least know what the minimum is. Um, and you should know what's on the deviation curves. Let's identify which interactions are part of your user's uh, experience achieving their core objective, and then conscientiously add on to that as necessary. So what I want to ask today is, what if we all started thinking like this? What if there was a radical shift towards minimalism? What if we always identify the core objective, agnostic of what company we're working for? Because if you know what that is, then you really understand your user. What if we prioritized white space? And we practice editing. Uh, we make this a, a priority. <laughs> And what if our goal was to orchestrate the whole experience? What if our goal was to get out of the user's way?
What would the future look like? I have one example, which actually came up yesterday. Um, it's from the movie Her, and it always inspires me. Um, it's a story about a man and his operating system. They communicate conversationally through an earpiece and a camera that he keeps in his front pocket so that she can see what he sees. This clip I'm about to play is a montage of their life together. It's a vision of the future where no one's glued to their phones and devices. The objective is to just lead a more fulfilled life. And technology supports that by getting out of the way and fading into the background. So I hope I've persuaded you all to think like a minimalist today. Thank you for having me. It's totally not awkward that we're sitting here while somebody else is speaking. <laughs> Amy, it's I your turn. I found it kind of comforting. <laughs> we'll sit here to keep you company. Yes. Um, well, as I said, Amy Elliott um, will talk more about the privacy experts of design and then together with the audience will explore what it means uh, to be a designer in this day and age. There you go. So, hello everyone. I am Amy Elliott from Simply Secure. This is my uh, contact information up on the screen. And uh, feel free to tweet at me, email me, keep the conversation going. Um, I put these slides uh, from the longer version yesterday up on GitHub. And uh, you're welcome to you know, download them if you would like more details. So I'm going to very quickly go over some of the challenges around privacy from a user experience point of view and end um, with some ideas about how UX designers can help make a difference in this important area. And uh, my number one point is that you don't need to be a cryptographer to work in security. Uh, this is a TLS certificate in this kind of um, graphic choice of green t glowing text on a black background, very much like the matrix. Uh, 
is indicative of a lot of the cultural conversation around security, that it's militaristic and cyber war and very technical and kind of boring or possibly very um, legal and, and uh, off-putting. And that's not true. These are exciting, important human issues, and we all have a part to play in uh, creating trustworthy digital experiences. So um, for context, corporations and governments um, gather data about us. And which of those you are worried about probably uh, depends on your geography. So um, in a nod um, to Bruce Sterling's talk, I myself left um, San Francisco last year after uh, 20 years working in uh, Silicon Valley and moved to Berlin uh, to focus on privacy. So um, as a, a new Berliner, I've been amazed at the strong positive feelings that um, the German people that I've met have about the government. And um, in my uh, simplistic reduction, the German community is um, pretty uh, hostile and skeptical of the intentions of the large US-based tech companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon, and, and generally pretty positive about um, the government having their data. In the United States, that's completely the opposite. Um, many people are very worried about the US government and um, actually look towards Google and, and Amazon, et cetera, as um, a kind of savior that can stand up to the government. And this is not something that has happened since November with the election of Donald Trump. This is an, an ongoing problem. Twitter, for example, has been fighting US government. Um, national security letters to hand over user data since 2014. And now, of course, the stakes are somewhat higher. Um, the uh, US government is talking about deporting 700,000 people, and the tech companies are offering to pay their legal fees so that they can stay. So um, I think that corporate surveillance and governmental surveillance are part of the context that we're, that we're living in. And one example of how this works in practice is apps. So during my time as a designer, I worked on, um, on apps for various kinds of digital experiences. And this is a photo I took in New York, um, in Harlem, interviewing a woman who was speaking specifically um, as part of a conversation around police surveillance in the black community in, in New York. And um, one kind of side note of this is we met for this interview in a Dunkin' Donuts. And over her shoulder, you can see DD Perks, which is the Dunkin' Donuts app that lets you get discounts on coffee and donuts. And um, I get kind of what the designers were probably trying to do. I've worked on apps like this. There's all kinds of features, like you can send a cup of coffee to a friend on their birthday if they live in another city, and social, community, and donuts, and, and what could go wrong. Uh, but if you look at the app permissions, this is um, a screenshot from the um, Germany Android Play Store. And I can read, read this out, it's a, it's a bit small. This app is asking to track you all the time because of course, e-commerce and retail, you've got this cool pocket computer, wouldn't it be great to know how far you always are from a Dunkin' Donuts? But some things you might not know, it asks to delete media off your phone, keep your phone from sleeping, um, other kinds of things. The US example also wants all of your contacts and. Uh, your Wi-Fi connection. So we're handing over very highly personally identifiable information to the Dunkin' Donuts of the world. And I think it makes sense to have a, a moment of cultural consideration about what some of the implications of those decisions are. Um, 
And I want to be very clear, this is not a conversation only about a one-to-one -one consumer relationship. This is a, a kind of a much bigger um, social problem. So um, IoT botnets uh, basically um, take over parts of the internet and can bring any piece of it offline. So for example, baby monitors, routers, equipment in your home could be compromised and you wouldn't even know as a consumer. So this goes beyond uh, taking a personal choice that you will not buy a internet toaster or an internet tea kettle. This means that if you have your house on the internet at all and you're using some kind of router, you're actually at, at risk of contributing to botnets. The reason these botnets are bad is they can use denial of service attacks to take any piece of infrastructure offline. So for example, Germany is going out to vote on Sunday and probably many people will want last minute information just to confirm some of the details. A targeted DDoS attack could take pages of, of websites offline so that people couldn't get that information in a timely manner. It's also a tool for censoring journalists. Security researcher Brian Krebs has estimated it costs him as a blogger, it would cost him 50,000 US dollars a year to defend his site against a Murray botnet attack. Obviously, that price tag is too high for independent journalists to maintain. So we've essentially handed over the power to silence people to uh, whoever's controlling these robot debts. So in, uh, in the smart cities, my, uh, my city of San Francisco is, is one of several cities worldwide that has an array of microphones that's always listening for gunshots so that they can call the police and tell the police where the gunshots happen. Um, this, is, this is reality, this is common. Um, the uh, ShotSpotter uh, software has a very detailed website full of videos, including some of San Francisco, of um, you know, police racing to solve crimes. But as a person walking down the street, I have very few tools to know that there's a microphone array maintained by some private company that's sending information to the police. It's probably a good idea to have a conversation about that. And we're also bringing these devices into our homes. For example, the Amazon Alexa. Um, there was recently an attack called the Dolphin Attack where people using uh, too high for humans to hear sounds are controlling Alexas and Siri's and Google Homes and, and you know, even some cars, giving commands. They could say, go to a malicious website, download software. But I also want to talk not only about what's coming in, but what's going out. So um, Santa Clara County, California, home of the headquarters of, of uh, Facebook and Apple and Google, half, half of the families speak a language other than English at home, probably slightly more than half for the most recent census information. And Alexa knows that. And I think that um, if we're realistic, there's reasons in the US why you might want to be concerned about what's going, what's going on there. So. Um, We've built this infrastructure with good intentions, but the consequences of how it may be used are just um, unclear. So I'm going to end with some quick um, hits of how UX designers can make a difference. These are red receipts from different messaging apps. Green bubbles on iOS indicate you're messaging with an Android user. Blue bubbles mean a person has an iPhone. Use of words like red and delivered in the time tell you little bits about how the system that you don't see works. At the far uh, side, you can see the WhatsApp messaging screen using check marks to indicate that messages are read. That is a very simple design intervention that changes behavior. When I get a WhatsApp alert on my phone, 
I'm careful not to touch it. I don't want that check mark next to my name because then I'm being rude. So that design decision has changed my behavior and helped me understand how other people in the group are interacting uh, with this technology. How can we as a community of designers think about red receipts for other applications, red receipts for Alexa, red receipts for microphone arrays, listening for gunshots? So I would like to celebrate um, a range of design skills, um, including visual design, brand, content strategy, and writing. This is a Canadian company called Tunnel Bear that is the opposite of this cyber threat down green and black by using a really friendly and approachable visual language about bears to convey a sense of privacy and security. And I think this is important because it's, it's, a, it's selling or providing an optimistic vision of protection that people want to say yes to instead of just saying, no, down, don't succumb to the, the threats. And it's cute and humorous and engaging. And how do you get to something like that? Well, I think that style guides are a very important tool for uh, helping teams over time be consistent and have that message. You can recognize that dark green on that coffee cup as Starbucks because they have been so consistent worldwide, getting the exact colors right, printed onto their cups, and, on multiple continents. That's a snippet of the Simply Secure style guide behind me, where we also are trying to use these kinds of, of colors and, and shapes. And part of the, the reason of that is to avoid phishing attacks and, and site impersonations, which is one kind of a threat. So um, I will just uh, wrap up by saying Simply Secure has a knowledge base. This is how you find it online. We are a nonprofit with an educational mission to help practitioners, designers, developers, user experience researchers get access to this kind of information to work harder on privacy, ethics, and security. So please let me know if you're using this and how we can make it uh, more helpful and relevant um, to your needs. And uh, with that, I will uh, say thank you, and I'm happy to keep the conversation going. We have a few minutes for questions. I have a few, but I'm also looking at the room, so I don't miss if anybody has a direct question. Okay, I'll start first, so you think of your questions. Um, I, I was really curious. I described before that we, you know, we have this world of digital for 25 years now. Um, you're both designers that have been working in the field for a while. So where did you start? What was the first thing you did? Because it probably was something that was not Internet of Things or artificial intelligence or... Well, where did you start, Amy? What's the first thing? Um, I was a research scientist at Ricoh Innovations. They're a Japanese company that makes cameras and copiers. And the first kind of product thing that I worked on was um, an e-meeting room in 2001. So kind of Internet of Things-esque, yeah. um, although we, at the time we called it ubiquitous computing. So it was like cameras for whiteboard capture because they're a camera company. Is it still there? Um, the research center is still there, but I'm not in touch with their, their latest product so. line, so I don't, I don't know. And you, Lily, where did you start? My first job was at Intel in uh, Portland, Oregon. And, and what did you design there? I was hired as an industrial designer slash interaction designer. So um, I was really just, and I was the only designer in the team at the beginning. We were um, the, user, the center for uh, user-centric design at mm -hmm. Intel. And um, so people would come to us, we're like a little internal agency, but 
uh, everybody else was engineers. So, so, so what did you so, work on? So I did all kinds of things that also that I can't talk about because oh, a lot of them are in the labs at Intel. Um, they come up with some crazy cool stuff, but a, lo a lot of uh, product and uh, cutting edge technology and I would help on either the software side, uh, the interaction design, um, and also some of the uh, product design. So, so you've both from the start been involved with the combination hardware-software, basically, yeah. because that's, that's where all the interaction is taking place now. Now, your suggestion is that basically it should be you know, without any borders, so you lose all the interaction points in the design process. I can imagine that for a designer with, with for instance, artificial intelligence coming up, it's, it's quite, it's a new field, it's hard to know the new tools, there, not, there are none so far. How do you interact with artificial intelligence? So how do you do that? How do you get around that? Yeah, well, I think some of the, um, some of the steps in your process will be the same. You still have to identify what the core user need is and you still have to identify a way of interacting with that. So it might not be a tangible product or a screen, um, but maybe it's a tone of voice or, like, or the way that you have a conversation. Um, but I, I think that the process will remain the same. If you're designing for users, you have to advocate for them and for their best experience. And you have to identify uh, how much of their, their time are you going to take up. Yeah. Uh, and users don't change that much. The, the technology does. Yes, yeah. But you move, you, just referring back to uh, Bruce's talk this morning, you made this move from Silicon Valley to Europe. I did. Um, what is Germany or Europe doing so well then? I mean, I, I think the, the German kind of culture around privacy is really interesting and, and exciting um, for me personally because um, I some field work that I did in March of this year back in San Francisco. I had the mistaken idea that when I showed people the app permissions, like this Dunkin' Donuts example, that um, maybe they would rethink some of the data that they're sharing. And um, that was wrong. The, the people in the, in the study in San Francisco thought it was great that they were sharing data with all these companies and they wanted to share more data with, with more companies, like really strongly and, and, and clearly. And um, I think I'm not a lawyer and I can't spek to the regulatory aspects of, of, of Datenschutz, but I can say that it's inspiring to me when I go to a hair salon and I see Food um, Woche and they have a like information, an article in there about um, you know, how to disable Android location tracking. I mean that's that's cool. Like it's it's exciting. Questions from the room for design. Yeah, I see one over there. The microphone is coming up. Please, sir. Yes. Hello, this is a question to uh, Lily. I want to know, how does minimalism handle the long tail? The, the long term? The long tail. The, the, long uh, the tail. complexity of um, the last 2% and, and their complex needs that deviate from the ideal path. Okay, so, so you can design for what most people want, but how do you design for what the very odd one out wants? Oh, I see. If, the, if I correctly... Yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, regardless of, of what user you pick, you can, you can optimize an experience for them. So even if they're not the majority, um, I think that thinking in a minimalist way for that user experience is still appropriate. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, propose that we, we pare everything down. I'm just proposing that we uh, practice this way of identifying what really matters to people.
if that makes sense. Does that help? More? Yes, there's one more same thank row you. over there. Yes, please. That way. Yes, thank you. <coughs> yeah, um, <coughs> question concerning both of you. Um, so minimalism and privacy um, have troubles getting together because minimalism tries to get everything out of the user's view. For example, um, uh, just reading the whole phone book with, with WhatsApp or with iOS 11, if you turn off um, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, it's not actually turned off anymore. Um, how, how can you bring those two very important things together? Fight. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a fight. Like, I believe in designers. I believe in the power of UX design to do a better job. And, and in terms of the Bluetooth with the, or the Wi-Fi turning off, I was particularly struck by Apple's decision that it will try again at 5 a.m. Um, and that just struck me as so specific and so awkward. And I was like, imagine the meeting where they were like, what time should you know, we reconsider these <laughs> when settings? When are most people asleep, <laughs> so they can't say no. Yes. Um, so I think that we have spent a lot of energy as um, interaction designers and in making things seamless. And part of that is to encourage sales. We want no friction in taking money from potential customers, so let's make it as easy as possible to buy things. And I think that um, now we're at a moment where exposing seams in an elegant way or having elegant seams can, can help be more transparent about how these systems work. And that is an extremely hard design problem. And I think we need minimalism. And I think we need to learn from the masters in, in order to make good decisions that are, are, are legible um, around how these things work. I mean, no one's confused yeah. about what you do with your spoon in the, in the rice cooker. And right now, a lot of people are confused about like, what's happening when they're pushing with, Yeah, with security, with what to do with security. I think minimalism is not necessarily about getting rid of everything. It's about uh, whose responsibility is it to deal with this thing. And, uh, and right now, security is something that we have to worry about. Um, for ourselves because it, it's not on the other side. It's not on the, in the backstage, to use a service design term. Um, but I think the goal should be that eventually companies should offer uh, comprehensive security um, as, as part of their service. So eventually we shouldn't, as users, have to, have to do all these extra things to protect ourselves. So I, I don't think that there's a, a conflict. Actually, I agreed with everything. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think we have to round up because the next speaker is already in the side. Last question over here. Yes, please. Can we have a microphone over here, right third row here? Or shout. I will repeat the question. Okay, I will shout. <laughs> um, so, Lily, this idea about oh, you know, it, minimalism, and I'll just use the example that you used about the library. Okay, the microphone's here. About to Lily, about the library. Yes, go ahead. I'll just use it as an example. So. Well, maybe you just comment, I mean, don't you think there's also something that we're losing in that process? For example, the process of going to a library, yeah. going, going through the card catalog, going to the stacks, seeing other things that you might not have wanted yeah. to find. So maybe something I kind of think about a lot, and I just wonder, since you're sort of advocating for that, if you might want to talk about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, I think... You can, you can totally argue that going to the library is a wonderful user experience, right? I have some, some great memories of going to the library when I was a kid. Um, so I, I think 
that in some cases, those deviations can be part of the objective. Um, but I think it's, it's still important to, um, well, but the majority of people, uh, the, the trend has been moving towards the path of least resistance. <laughs> Even though going to the library is nice, that's not what most people are doing now. Most people are Googling things. Um, so isn't that a problem, perhaps? I mean, I don't know. I don't perhaps. know. It's, it's sort of a less perhaps. philosophical question because yeah. if, if Google gets to the point where they already anticipate what you want, like Google now is personalized, right? So now yeah. they don't even give you all the choices. They give you the choices that they think that you want based on your past experience, which always means they're, everything is about what you did before and there's no thing about what you might want to do different <laughs> for the future. So this is, to me, a really big problem, right? It, it's like a question for the designers of the world, right? Where do we want to take this thing? this like experiment of spaceship Earth. Like what's it gonna wind up looking like um, in the future? And that's why I love the example of the movie Her because uh, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, take us back. It, it almost feels like going back in time because um, he's spending quality time doing nice things uh, going on a sailboat. A sailboat is not the most efficient form of travel but it may be optimum for experiencing a more fulfilling life. To go on a sailboat every once in a while, it's nice. So I think it's a, really a question for all of us in the room. What are we aiming at? And how do we optimize for that? I think that's a perfect note to end this conversation with. Great Thank question. you both so Thank much. You. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ladies.